Amen. Thank you too for that. Be in the book of Psalms this morning. Psalm number 51, if you want to make your way there. Not all of the Psalms do we know the background and the history and everything, but for a few of them we do. We'll look at a little bit of the background for this one and why exactly David penned it. Well, go ahead and start. We'll read and then we'll, we'll get into the word here. Obviously, stay seated because of the length of the passage. We'll go ahead and read the whole thing. Psalm number 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That I mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. The bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and the sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. My tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it, that delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good, and thy good pleasure into Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings, with whole burnt offering. Then shalt thou offer bullocks upon thine altar. Dear Lord, once again we come before you to thank you today that we get to be in your house. Thank you for the liberty, thank you for the freedom. We thank you, Lord, that in this English language we have a complete word of God, the whole word preserved for us in the King James Version. Lord, there's a lot of languages in the world that don't have the whole thing or don't even have a little part of it. But Lord, you've been good to us, the English-speaking people that you've given us your word, translated in our language and preserved for us. We pray, Lord, that through that word that you speak to us today, may you be lifted up, may you be on your glory. You lead a promise on your word that it won't return void, but you get, it would accomplish what you'd have it to. If that be the case today, in your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Perhaps as the musicians reviewed their notes on some day before a feast was to be held, they wondered in their hearts why there was never any new music. Usually the king would give something. He was always an excellent songwriter. Yet the day there was none, neither had there been for some time. Chief musician didn't have an answer for his fellow men as to why the king had responded so curtly to his request when there might be another psalm to sing. The old ones were glorious, of course, and who of all Israel didn't love the old tunes that they were so accustomed to of how the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or how blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Yet today there was no new song, just the pluck and the pling of the men tuning their dulcimers and their harps for tomorrow's work. Yet some time later, there lied the prophet upon his bed, wondering why there had been no new word from the Lord, either to him or to Gad or even to the king. No news is good news, he supposed. But as he drifted off to sleep, behold, a vision, and the Lord had a task for him. How dreadful it was. Awakening, surely he had a great tremulation about his assignment. Perhaps the Lord whispered to him gently, Be not afraid, Nathan, for the king is a man after my own heart. He saw greatly, but thou shalt not be hurt. 
only be thou bold before the king. So he went and requested an audience with the keep, audience with the keepers of the king's throne room. Nathan was always welcome before the king, for they were friends. And how could the king not want to see his companion and his fellow servant of the Lord? So Nathan entered. Nathan knew the heart of the king well. He knew that he loved justice, and he knew that he loved sheep. Turn if you would briefly to Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter number twelve. We see Nathan he comes and requests an audience with the king. Starting in verse number one, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he said unto him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew together with him and with his children, and they did eat of his meat and drank of his, uh, drank of his own uh, cup and lay in his bosom. It was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for him that was come to him. And David's anger was kindled greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, he that hath done this thing shall surely die. And you should restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no pity. And Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I moreover would have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife. And thou hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor. And he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of his son. For if thou did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit by this deed thou hast given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The children, child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. For Nathan, now the deed was done. The message was delivered. A sigh of relief gently passed between his lips as he walked to his home. A few days later, there was a knock on the chamber door of the chief musician. A royal messenger left the letter in his hand and walked away. As the musician opened the letter, he read, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 51, Psalm of Repentance, after sin with Bathsheba, after the murder of Uriah. Right there in the title of the psalm lies the reason for its being penned. <clears throat> Many are confronted with sin, and the result is rage. The heart of David was sorrowful. Can we have a heart like that today? When the word of the Lord confronts us, convicts us, can we perhaps have the response of David with grief and sorrow and repentance? And we'll see the four stages of David's heart after he repents. A proper response to conviction will lead us to restoration. Back over to our text in Psalm 51. <clears throat> a repentant heart is a remorseful heart, verses 1 through 7. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. 
I should be wired in the snow. The worst part about a strike or a blow isn't the impact, but rather the sting. The shock that runs the spine and tingles the mind, taking an instantaneous impact, lasts now a measurable time. Remorse cuts deep, confrontation is the blow, and sorrow floods the heart and drives remorse deep into the spirit. The blow is shocking, but now the smitten one is reeling with the pain of his spirit as remorse brings godly sorrow. For the word of God has a power stronger and sharper than any man can muster. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any twitched sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is quick, not in that it moves fast, but that it is alive. And the word of God is powerful, translated from the word from where we get the word energy. It's alive and energetic, and it makes us have, the Bible has a living empathy and relatability to connect with each and every reader. And its power and its energy make a forceful impact upon the reader. But it's sharp, too. It pierces the soul and the spirit, the immaterial part of man. It is a spiritual book, and it affects man spiritually. There is a deep pricking felt by the word of God in the inner heart of man, but it divides the joints and the marrow, too. It affects the physical being of man by creating feelings and emotions. It gets down to the very bones that make our blood, the life of the flesh. It searches and knows the thoughts and even the intentions of the heart of man. The word is powerful. It is effective. When it confronts the heart and the heart responds in repentance, remorse will reemerge from the heart's deep chasm. The first thing, David asks, David's remorse asks for cleansing. Mercy is not getting that which we do deserve. That's to be differentiated from grace, which is getting something that we do not deserve. What was deserved by the law for the two sins he had committed was death penalty. Yet Nathan tells him, Lord hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. And David then pleads with the author of the law for mercy. So God's the one that wrote the law. He has no standard of himself to say, well, I don't deserve the punishment of the law. I believe that I can stand perfectly fine, but rather he goes to the one who wrote the law and he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. So he understands that God, yes, he's a just God, but he is a merciful God. So he goes to the one who wrote the law to plead for his mercy. And even today, we stand before the law of God and that the law convicts us that we're sinners. The Bible says in Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ. So what, what exactly does that mean? It means the law teaches us that we are sinners, that we have need of a Savior. And we still don't go, go towards the law to say, well, I believe according to law I stand justified. But rather we say, yes, the law condemns us. But I go to the one who wrote the law and the one who kept the law perfectly and who died for me in my place. And through him we beg mercy. Next he says, blot out. My, uh, blot out my sin, my iniquity. See, to blot out is something specific. If I, for example, have a shirt or a pair of pants that gets a stain on it, which is quite often, seems to be a, a curse in my family, we're always staining clothes. But I, I'm going to take that, and there's going to be a specific spot where that stain is. And it's going to be that spot that I scrub. It's going to be something that I blot out. I take very special attention to that spot, and I remove it. So it's something that's specific. A blot is a stain. To blot out is to remove the stain. So we take the stain out of the fabric, we blot it out. And it's a process, by the way, that the fabric can't do for itself. The pair of pants doesn't automatically take the stain and remove it from itself. It's something only the person can do for it. It's an external matter. You can't get the sin out by yourself. It's something that you require God to do for you. For our sin is something that only God can do. Next, after I remove the stain from the garment, it's going to be washed. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, washing now, that's comprehensive. The whole pair of pants is going to get thrown in the washing machine. And after the stain is removed, it's washed. And all the soap that I used on it, all the little scrub marks, all those are completely washed away. The water comes in and takes it out. They might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it might be holy without blemish.
blemish, the washing of the water by the word. Jesus comes in and after he blots out the stain, he washes us. Next, he says, cleanse me from my iniquity. Cleansing, now that's intensive. The word clean is defined as removing visible dust, dirt, or particles. When a garment is clean, then it has all the substances that were on it thoroughly removed. Now you can't tell that there was a stain on that pair of pants anymore. It's been blotted, it's been washed, it's been cleansed. When a garment is clean, it has all those substances thoroughly removed. David's remorse confessed his sin. He acknowledged his sin. So you can't be cleansed by your sin if you say it isn't there. If that pair of pants says, I don't have a stain, then it isn't going to ask for itself to be cleansed. But we must acknowledge our sin. We must confess that we did indeed commit it. See, one of the most more famous verses in the Bible, 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, what's interesting about that verse is the difference between the word confess and the word forgive. See, confession, it's an ongoing thing. It's if we confess our sins, so under this condition, God is faithful and just with the result or the reason to forgive us our sins. See, the confession is ongoing. When I realize I have a sin, and immediately I take that to God, I say, Lord, I have sinned. Lord, I've had this thought. Lord, I've done this deed. Lord, this, this sin has come into my life. I pray that you forgive me. And as we continue to confess that thing, the, the forgiveness is instantaneous. See, when God forgives, it's not an ongoing process of forgiveness. Rather, it's instantaneous. Lord, I, I confess, I repent, and forgiveness results. The tenses of the words are different. Confession is ongoing, but forgiveness is instantaneous. And it's not a confession or a continual, Lord, I did this sin so that I can be saved. Rather, 1 John is written to a group of saved people. It's talking about how to deal with the sin that comes up in your life once you are saved. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is talking specifically to saved people here in 1 John. So for us, it's not, I have to continue to confess every time I sin that I might maintain my salvation. Rather, it's so we might maintain relationship. So if we say we have sin, or if we say we have no sin, we'd receive ourselves when the truth is not in us. See, clearing out that sin is necessary to maintain that right relationship with God. David's remorse confessed his sin. And confessing is the first step of forgiveness and repentance. But for David, it's very, very interesting and peculiar what he says here. It's against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Well, what about Uriah? Wasn't Uriah sinned against? wasn't all the other family of Bathsheba sinned against. Yet the law of Uriah wasn't broken. It was the law of God that was broken. And every time we sin, we must understand that first and foremost, that sin is directly against God. Is there anything that I do in my body, I'm sinning against the Lord. If there's ever a candy bar that I steal from Walmart, if there's ever a, anything else that's done, that sin isn't against Walmart, no, it's against the Lord. Because it's the Lord's law that's broken. We must understand that sin is directly against the Lord. If we understand that it's against the Lord, we understand that Man's not where we get our forgiveness. I don't sin against man and then have man's forgiveness to cleanse me, but rather I sin against God and have God's forgiveness to cleanse me. Man may receive inconvenience and difficulty from sin, but the sin is directly against God. God's law is violated, and the great standard of righteousness was fallen short. For all have sinned and come what? Short of what? The glory of man? No, the glory of God. When we sin, we must understand that it is God's glory that we come short of. And therefore, when we sin, it is only God that we can go to to confess and to receive forgiveness. Catholics believe that you have to go into a little chamber and confess it to a priest. And the priest will give you a prescription, almost like a doctor, for how to be cured. Say this many Hail Marys, say this many Our Fathers, and you'll have forgiveness of your sins. But it's not some prescription from man, because it's not a sin against man, it's a sin against God. So we take that confession to God and we receive God's forgiveness. David's remorse understood the importance of the inner man. 
He said, Behold, thou desirest truth, verse 6, in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David needed to have an honesty about his sin. David needed to understand that his sin affected his heart internally. So for mankind, the Bible says that the spirit of, the, of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. So God took the spirit of David and he looked deep inside and he saw there's sin there. There's some iniquity there that you're concealing. And even down in his spirit, he understood the Lord had searched through him and the Lord had known him. Psalm 139 says, Behold, Lord, thou hast searched me, thou hast known me, thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising, thou understandest my thoughts afar off. See, for David, he understood that the spirit of the Lord had now come into his spirit and searched throughout him. And the Lord already knew that the sin was there. But just like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the Lord came and he said, Adam, where art thou? The Lord knew exactly where he was. But Adam needed to confess in order to have the restoration. So for David, David, the Lord knew that the sin was there. But for David, he had to be able to have the honesty in the other parts and confess and say, Lord, yes, I have this sin there. Throughout my early teen years, there was some, not great sin, but talk about Hebrews 2, the weights which easily beset us, those little things that kind of hold us back. A long time, I deny the Lord and say, no, there's, there's not something that's holding me back from a proper relationship with you. But one day there was a day that I confessed and said, yeah, it's, it's there. And I got it right. And shortly after that's when the Lord called me into ministry. The Lord has a special plan for us. We're not going to have the relationship with him that we need to be able to have access to that joyful life. And we're going to say, in a dishonesty, I have no sin. There's nothing wrong with me. And we know very well that there is. He desires truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, he shall make us to know wisdom. Oftentimes, it's, it's very obvious to God. Think about a child when he takes a cookie out of the cookie jar and gets chocolate smear all over his mouth. And mom says, you eaten a cookie? Josh says, no, I haven't. But the evidence is there. It's right on the mouth. And God sees it and he can't hide it from him. So when I have the honesty, when I have the truth in the inward parts, confess it to the Lord. He already knows. So why not confess? A repentant heart is a renewed heart. Repentance is a restorer. Finds the dilapidated buildings of men's consciences and restores them to bright and airy mansions of grandeur. Takes off the boards from the windows and allows the light of the word of God to come in. Now the darkness is illuminated, and the filth that lies in it is carried out. Deeper and deeper into the halls, the locked doors of the secrecy are kicked in and cleaned. There's fire damage from the burning pain of guilt who has long lived there. Walls are replaced, framing is strengthened, the black tar is scrubbed from the floors. The foundation was never cracked or decayed, for it was made of the chiefest of cornerstones. And upon this foundation, repentance makes its mends. Repentance cleans the nooks and the crannies and all the corners and the cubbies. The walls are painted white and pure. The finest chandeliers brighten each room. No more is the dark stain of sin upon the wooden floor, for it has been sanded and stained crimson as the cleansing blood of Christ. Repentance makes a fine home for the conscience, but many are too unwilling to open the door and to let him in. For David, he had lived long in this rundown house. He now had restoration from God. All the parties and the socials of his life are returned. Each guest who visits his home has the pleasure of conversing with the host about the goodness of God. They gather together around the piano and the foyer and sing once again, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Because of David choosing repentance, the heart is renewed and restored. Verses 9 through 11. Hide thy face from thy sin and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. See, David desired to not lose the fellowship. David's repentance sought renewed forgiveness. See, to hide thy face means to lose fellowship, to be turned away 
Turning away from someone, from the speaker, is to not have dialogue. I don't know for those of you who have had maybe different animals in your life, but my parents have always had some sort of dog in the home. And for the past few years, they've had a puppy. Um, first they bought a bulldog puppy, then it got to adulthood, and now they bought a boxer, and the boxer's maybe a year, year, year and a half old now. But when I go and I'll bury my head in the couch, and I'll hide myself from it, the dog will come up and he'll start pawing at me, he'll start biting at my ears. And both of them did this. They weren't, they weren't brought up together, they were independent animals. But they understood that when I went and I turned myself away and I hid myself in the couch, they're like, nope, there's, there's some fellowship that's not there, I want that face. I want to be able to see it. And so the dogs, they come and it's quite painful as they bit my ears, but <laughs> eventually I turn my face up and their joy would be restored. They'd be happy. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if I understand there's the iniquity there and I go to speak to the Lord, but the face is turned away, he doesn't hear the sin. And we think that there's, oh God, surely, he's always there, he always hears. Well, there's a broken fellowship. And if that broken fellowship, it's on our part. The Lord turns his face away from hearing the prayer when we regard the iniquity. It was hidden, it's unsearchable. We look for the face. They want to have fellowship, but we can't bear when the face is hidden from us. So God, sorry, David begs God to restore the fellowship. He begs him once again, blot out my transgressions. Take that those specific sins that I'm confessing and remove them. David's repentance sought for a renewed heart. Renew, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. To create a clean heart requires creation. Creation is an act of God. No man can simply create something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Through faith we understand that the world was framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen not made of things which do appear. So there's the, the term for creation we call ex nihilo. It's out of nothing. God created the world. He brought matter and substance into existence that wasn't there before. So the act of creation is something that requires an act of God. Nobody simply just creates something. And David asked God to make something in him. See, God is the expert heart surgeon. He makes a stony heart soft. Ezekiel, he says, I shall take away the stony heart and give him a heart of flesh. He creates a clean one as well. And he renews it. He renews the right spirit. When the heart is created new, the spirit must be renewed. There must be a refreshing of the spirit. <clears throat> um, the word of refresh is to, to take something that was wilted and it's decayed and to make it live and normal again. At work, we have the process of if we ever have wilted lettuce, as I work in Chick-fil-A, if we ever have lettuce that's wilted, it's just a little bit limp, what we'll do is we'll stick it into an ice bath. So we'll fill up a 12-quart container of ice water and we'll dip the lettuce in it. Let it sit in the fridge for a little while and eventually as the water comes back into the lettuce, restore the trigger pressure and be firm be normal like a normal piece of lettuce. And it's called refreshing the lettuce. Our spirit must be refreshed, it must be renewed, it must have the water of the word of the Lord come into it and to make it refreshed again. It must be a time when it is brought back and restored, like when it was clean and new. New construction has kind of that Home Depot smell. You're walking to Home Depot, you smell the lumber and you smell all the, the fresh construction supplies. So likewise, when you walk into a new home that's built, you walk into something that's recently remodeled, there's that, that is new smell tells us everything is fresh. And once in a while, we need to scour all the deep and the hidden places and make it smell fresh again. David's repentance sought for a renewed fellowship. He said, cast me not away from thy presence. David could not bear to be taken away from fellowship of the Lord. He understood that if he regarded his iniquity in his heart, the Lord wouldn't hear him. And so by ignoring God for so long, he had, by his choice, ceased the fellowship with him. First Thessalonians 5 tells us, quench not the spirit. See, he hadn't lost his salvation but he had lost his fellowship. And David desired to regain that communion with God. 
says, take not thy Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that will bless that which is holy, but he won't have fellowship with unholy. The Bible says in Corinthians, what well, fellowship hath light with darkness? What well, communion hath the temple of God with idols? If we're the temple of the living God, yet we're allowing some idol in our hearts, what well, fellowship does the Holy Spirit have with that? Something that's not holy, so there's going to be a bothering in our hearts. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell the believer, but for us, he does. And there's going to be that constant pricking, that constant pain, that there's something in the temple that's not supposed to be there. So David prayed, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We, may not, we will not lose the Holy Spirit's presence, but we may lose the Holy Spirit's power in our lives if we do not confess our sin. We will not have the Holy Spirit power in our lives if we live in sin and quench his convicting nudges. Thirdly, we see the repentant heart is rejoicing heart. Guilt will eat at you like a gangrene. It gets a hold of the body and begins at the extremities. Oh, but I don't want to lose my hand, the victim will cry as the gangrene eats away ever so slowly. So it consumes the hand. Ah, but to cut off my arm, how very sharp and pain the pain would be and grievous to lose my arm to a blade to cut away this gangrene. I wish I never had it. Why must I live with this infection eating me away? So the arm is consumed. It moves onward. It creeps onto the neck and over the back, onto the scalp and down the spine, ever consuming and ever destroying the body. Leprosy incurable, a disease undefeatable, a guilt insatiable. Guilt will gnaw upon you like a rodent. Its teeth grow and grow and by their very nature must consume lest they are consumed. A rodent's teeth never stop growing. They continue to grow in their life. And that's why they constantly gnaw upon the nuts and the acorns that they find. That's why squirrels are obsessed with acorns. They constantly must bite upon something because their front teeth always grow. If they allow them to grow so long, eventually what it'll do, if they're not gnawing on something, is they'll grow to the point where the mouth is pried open and they'll starve themselves to death. So likewise with guilt, it must sink its teeth into something. It must knock upon the hard heart of the one who it lives in. So they must bite in its teeth growing and gnawing upon the victim of guilt. Another gnashing of teeth upon the hard heart of the guilty. Another biting upon the loathsome soul of the Christian who refuses to repent. Guilt will stain your visage till others wonder over you. The greatest writers are not those who have a command of their language, but rather those who have an understanding of the human mind. And Shakespeare was one of those. In his book, Macbeth, a man and his wife assassinate the king and usurp the throne. In one portion of the story, the wife takes a bucket and tries in vain to scrub the blood stains of the murdered away. They aren't really there, but the sinner sees them. She feels the dripping and the staying power of guilt upon her heart till it consumes her. The doctor of the house marvels how she is turned mad, but she isn't crazy. She's guilty. Guilt takes away joy. Guilt consumes the mind in solidarity of hardening memory of the horrors of the body's actions are constant ever flashing, flashing upon the mind's eye of recollection. Oh, but why? Why did I? Yet I can't make it right. I can't confess and repent. But surely hurt greater than the torment of my present estate. Never, no, never can the guilt and joy live together in the same heart. I remember being a little kid and having broken, I think it was a one of these light fixtures is up in the, the back uh, teen room, throwing something and broken it. And it's either do I live with the guilt of breaking it or do I confess and I get it right? Eventually I did confess. It's like, like $7.50 to buy a new one. It's cheap. But the confession brought the restored joy. So if I live with the guilt in there, it's going to constantly be upon my mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk, I'm going to eat my lunch, and it's going to be there. I'm going to go to bed, it's going to be there. And the guilt's going to be constantly biting upon me. Joy is the victim, and guilt is the assassin. Joy lies murdered while guilt stalks the hallway, seeking any more of joy's kin to kill. It arrives in the chamber of happiness and slays it as well. Moving to another room, it finds ecstasy and ruthlessly kills it without remorse. Pleasure can't hide, is pinned against the wall as guilt moves in for another kill. 
Gladness tries to flee, but he's tripped by the wiles of guilt. And one final stroke of victory, guilt kills the heirs of joy and the conscience of the guilty and sets up his throne. Where there is guilt, there is no joy. For David, the joy had been gone, and the guilt had reigned in his darkened castle of his conscience. For repentance has arrived and enters into the throne room of guilt and wins the battle in the power of God in the heart. Guilt rails against repentance, but you are certainly harder upon the heart and your shackles than I am. Yet repentance responds, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Guilt is imprisoned in forgiveness's dungeon. He is only let out for a short season, as the heart is tempted to remember. But he is quickly shut up again when joy is revived, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Verse number 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones that thou hast broken may rejoice. Verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall so forth thy praise. David's repentance brought renewed gladness. So once again to hear joy. See, that joy had been lost in sin. And even the Bible says that there's pleasure in sin for a season, Hebrews 11.25. But it also says, bread of a seed is sweet to a man, but afterwards his mouth shall be filled with gravel. Repentance allows for joy. Joy is deep down and is irregardless of circumstances. If I have joy, then it doesn't matter what circumstances come into my life. There's still a deep down and inner happiness. Though I should lose a loved one, though I should suffer many different difficulties in my life, still that joy is there. But once again, to hear gladness. Gladness is circumstantial. They wanted to actually be able to enjoy his life again. There's happy people around him, but he seems to be unhappy. He wants to be able to partake of all the happiness that is going on, but he hasn't been able to recently. And he says, Lord, restore him to the joy. Restore that deep down peace. And then no matter what's going on, I have the joy of my salvation. He didn't say, Lord, restore him to me my, thy salvation, but he said, restore him to me the joy of it. See, the salvation was still there, but he had lost the joy. He said, restore the gladness, make me be able to enjoy everything that's going on around me in my life. Bones which thou hast broken to rejoice. See, in this time in Israel, shepherds, if there was ever a wayward sheep, they would intentionally break the bone of the sheep and carry it back, carry it back to the fold, and then they would nurse the sheep back to health. It would help it to recover from the broken bone. And the sheep would eventually forget where the bone had been broken from, but it would remember the shepherd and his care. And David says, Lord, you've, you've broken my bone, but make it to rejoice again. Make it to have the healing that only you can bring to where I can have my comfort in you again. Remember, it's in Psalm 23, he says, Thy rod and thy staff, they come for me. See, one of those tools was for warning mouth predators, but the other one was for correcting the sheep. It was both of them that brought comfort for David. There's a joy of salvation. Salvation always has joy. There is a relationship with God and a forgiveness of sin. If we live in sin, we don't lose the salvation, but we do lose the joy. We lose the complete tranquility of peace with God because there is a disturbing in our spirit. He says, uphold me with thy free spirit. God's spirit gives encouragement in overcoming the sin that we have. In 1 John, Bible says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome the sin and guides us to right. And we know, yes, there's, there's something I did, Lord. I'm, I'm not a perfect human being. I understand that there's, there's been some sort, of, some sort of sin that I've had. There's some sort of weight that's been besetting me. He says, you can, you can move past it, my power. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And when our heart condemns us, God's greater than the heart. David had quenched the spirit, and he had grieved the Lord. And for this whole time, however long it was, whether it was six months, whether it was seven months, whether it was 
nine months he had lived in this sin, there was, there was no new song. There was no new psalm. There was no joy. There was no sweet communion with the Lord. Sure, he was there for the sacrifices. I mean, why wouldn't the king show up for all of the official events that he has to be at? Maybe he even prayed. Maybe he even sang one of his own psalms, but it wasn't real. It was all done in the flesh. He had quenched his spirit in his life until the word of God brought conviction. David's repentance brought a desire to praise the Lord. He now could teach others his righteousness. He had a desire for others to be pointed to, towards the Lord. See, when we're in some kind of sin, we don't, we don't want the, the righteous to be around us. Take it, for example, when we're, we're at work, if we're ever doing something that isn't exactly the way something should be done, if we're taking something on a shortcut, we don't want the boss to show up. We don't want to point other, everybody else to the proper instructions of how to do something. See, there's, a, there's kind of a, a training book. It's not a training book. It's more of an app that we have uh, where I work. It's called Pathway. And if we ever want to know how something's done, we'll look it up in Pathway. But if there's ever that one employee that just doesn't want to do things right, he doesn't want to check his work, he doesn't want to do it quite right, he wants to cut the corners, he's not ever going to direct someone to Pathway. He's not ever going to say, go look up the instructions and learn how to do it right. You just continue to push others down the same road that he's in. Yet for David, once he gets something right, he says, you know, I want everybody else to have this joy as well. I want to point everyone else to the one who made me right. He had a desire, once again, to lift up the word of God. He will now praise the Lord. We don't want to lift, us, lift up something that makes us feel guilty. We don't want to honor God when we are in sin. But now that his conscience is clear, he wants to worship God again. Now, often do we avoid spiritual things when our consciences are guilty and dirty? How often is it that maybe we'll still have to show up at church, but the Bible gets dust on its cover from Sunday evening through Sunday morning when we pick it up again? Because we don't want to feel, we don't want to feel the pricking power of reading the Word of God for ourselves. Fourthly, we see the repentant heart lives in spiritual reality. Reality is a monster to modern society. He rears up his form and they cannot fight him. And they know that. So they hide from him. They hide in liquor. They hide in social media. They hide from him in entertainment. Whatever medium that distracts them from inevitable reality, they flee to it. Sooner or later, though, reality will grip the man by the throat and stare him down until he admits it. This is called realization. Realization shows us the false notions that we conceived in our hearts and distracts us from reality. Realization allows us to live in reality and reckon upon it and make decisions in light of it. For spiritual things, reality isn't an outward show, it's an inward man. Reality deep inside that truly with all of its heart looks to God and worship. Reality, realization of this reality brings about a repentant heart that wants God and nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't try to make a pretense with showy religion, but like David said, it requires truth in the inward part. It just lies bare before the Lord repents of sin, and seeks relationship. God doesn't want an outward display of false piety. He says, uh, verse 16, If thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. See, a sacrifice is just an outward display. It's like paying a ticket or in some sort of speeding violation. We just go, we just pay the fine, and we leave. Do we really have a repentance from it? No, we just pay the fine. So for David, God didn't want some outward token, no burnt offering. Rather, what it says, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. See, a broken spirit. David, David, sorry, God desired David to have a true repentance that was broken over sin. See, brokenness over sin isn't guilt. Guilt makes us want to do anything but repent. But brokenness will allow us to not do anything until we repent. See, if I'm guilty, then I want to I hide from the repentance. I want to hide from the conviction. But if I'm broken, I'm sorrowful and there's not going to be anything that can distract me until I make it right. A contrite heart 
He needed to have a heart that was contrite. The word contrite has the idea of being crushed. Contrition comes from the Latin word for crushing. And there must be an inward crushing and a brokenness over our sin. If this is the case, then God will not ignore asking forgiveness. They say, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. However, he's still going to hear this, the, the prayer of repentance. So he still seeks that restore relationship. When we come in that prayer and we say, Lord, forgive me. I have a broken spirit. I have a contrite heart. And then the Lord will hear that prayer. In this case, God is not ignoring asking forgiveness. Only when the heart is right will outward devotion be acceptable. He says, Do good in thy good pleasure and design. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offerings, with whole burnt offerings, shall they offer upon thine altar. See, once that inward heart is made right, then outward devotion is well-pleasing to the Lord. When the heart is right, our tokens are accepted and honored. God has a respect for a right offering only with a right heart. We look at the story of Cain and Abel. See, Abel offered the sheep. Cain offered the fruit of the ground. See, Abel's offering was right, but also his heart was right. Not only was Cain's offering wrong, but his heart was wrong. The Bible says in uh, Genesis 4, 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? But if not, sin lieth the door. Not only for Cain was his offering wrong, but his heart in which he brought it was wrong. And therefore, because of those two things, it was rejected. When the heart is right, outward tokens are accepted and honored, but only when the heart is right, and only when it is the right offering. Then David says, I'll offer burnt offerings. I'll offer whole burnt offerings. I'll offer bullocks upon an altar. In conclusion, there is a crucial aspect to repentance we must understand. This truth is that repentance does not nullify consequences. Repentance clears the heart with God and removes guilt. David still received judgment from his sin, and God promised him that the sword would not depart from his house, and others would sin against his family openly, the same sins that he had committed in private. David received his judgment at the hand of the Lord, but his heart was clean. So what about our sin? Our smiles in our church, there are many people who have their sins forgiven by placing their faith in the blood of Christ, yet I would not be irrational to think that that is the only group present. There's someone amongst us today who is gripped in their heart by their need for Christ, their need for forgiveness, their need for repentance. Those who have not accepted Christ as their Savior, your heart sits in a very strange building. It's an aged one. It's a prison built of the hardest stone that sits on the edge of an eroding cliff. As far as waves leap against the cliff, just a little more erodes, crackling a little at a time. Finally, the time will come when the cliff breaks away and your cell falls headlong into the great fiery lake of hell. As you sit in your cell waiting your fate, you try to distract yourself with the lies that surely it isn't true. There's no hell. I'm perfectly safe. Yet conviction will walk by your cell and hold out a glistening item in his hand and says, Someone bought you this gift. Use it. As you examine the object, you find it's a shiny little key and on it written repentance. Oh, but it's a lie, you say to yourself, not dangling over a fiery hell, waiting to drop. Yet deep, deep in your heart there cries the Holy Spirit, the words of Isaiah, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he'll mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon while he may be found, perhaps that implies that there is a day when he can't be found. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time in your life when conviction walks by and offers the key. Repentance won't do you any good unless you have faith to trust the one who bought you the gift and knows the lock. Jesus suffered in our stead. For the word of um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You decide to use the key. You repent of your sin. You follow conviction and he leads you out of the prison. When you come to a straight and narrow bridge, perhaps only four to five inches wide, you ask, what is this? Conviction. And conviction replies, it is the cross. You must go by the way of the cross of faith. If you do not go by the way of the cross, 
then this building even here still where you stand will erode and you will fall headlong into hell. Fear not to walk by faith. So you tread the very narrow bridge and call out, Lord, take me by the way of the cross. I have faith in your pardon. So you walk beyond the cross and your prison garments are exchanged. You're living a cleansing wash in the blood of Christ. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. In exchange for the guilt you wore, you now receive a garment called grace. And you have left the prison of sin rejoicing as David. You sing, thank God that I'm free, free, free from this world of sin. Washed in the blood of Jesus, I've been born again. Hallelujah, I'm saved, saved, saved by his wonderful grace. I'm so glad that I found out he could bring me out and show me the way. Like a bird out of prison that's taken his flight, like a blind man that God gave back his sight. Like a poor wretched beggar that's found fortune and fame. I'm so glad that I found out he can bring me out through his holy name. And there you stand. From your sin, free. And we'll win. We'll do a time of invitation. Musicians, if you'll come. We can all stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.